This presentation is from Design Research 2021, day one. Our final talk for today is Ben Kral. Ben will be joining us shortly. Ben is going to give us a introduction, a tour. Hello, Ben. Hey, Steve. How are you? We'll be talking about mathematics for designers. We save that as a gift for you pre-lunch <laughs> to close out the day. Ben, over to you. Thanks, Steve. Hello, design researchers. Thank you for your time and attention today. Um, I'm coming to you from Brisbane, which is home to both the Yagra and Turbera people. Um, as Steve said, I want to talk to you about maths, or more specifically numbers um, and measurement and why clients and stakeholders really want design research outcomes to be numerical. Um, so let me be really clear about this, that uh, I am not advocating for abandoning qualitative research. Far from it, I am a qualitative researcher by training and practice, and I really do believe in the power and validity of qualitative research. But I often find myself in meetings with stakeholders who don't. So perhaps you have been in this situation where you're halfway through presenting something to a client and a voice from the back of the room says, well, what was your sample size for this? Or even worse, are you sure this is significant? I would like to think in 2021 that we have moved past this naive understanding of research but we clearly haven't, or rather our stakeholders probably haven't. And at one level, this is disappointing. Um, I have been doing and advocating for qualitative research in user experience for just over 20 years. Uh, and in some ways, it still feels the same. Um, but if you look at this another way, most of the time, this isn't that surprising. Um, when we come to present research to people, it's just not part of their daily work, as Kaylee said, sometimes the language we use makes it seem a bit foreign to people. And because people don't encounter the practice and the outcomes and the way we talk about them very often, they bring their own uh, understandings to it and they use things that they know about to understand what we are telling them. So I think the most common research that the general public encounters is maybe market research. And until recently, it was probably a very particular kind of market research. And um, I would say maybe like the preferred prime minister poll, either front page of the newspaper or on the six o'clock news. And there's a funny thing about the preferred PM poll. The sample size isn't what you would expect. Um, how many people do you need to survey in a country of 26 million to say with some degree of certainty who people would think should be the preferred prime minister? Um, and it's really small. It's a really small sample size. You can uh, report that um, with sort of about 1,000 to 1,500 people, uh, which sounds really low if you're saying, trying to say something about 26 million. Um, but most people don't ask questions like that. They don't ask of that poll, what is the sample size? How should I trust this? Because they're not trying to make their decisions based on it. When you talk to an organization though, they need to trust what you're telling them. And oftentimes, um, the reason that they need to trust with what you trust what you're telling them is they're gonna make a, the decision after you've left. So stakeholders know that 
they, they trust numbers. They understand decision-making with numbers. Um, the problem for us is a lot of designers and design researchers think they are bad at maths, or at least they don't know how to math and design research at the same time. Uh, this is a problem because it means our stakeholders don't trust us. And it's a problem because stakeholders will then commission the wrong kind of research to make decisions that we know we can help them with by doing uh, design research, ethnography, research about design problems. The way to fix this is obviously to give your stakeholders numbers, but which numbers should you give them? And the problem here is numbers often don't tell you what to design, how to design, or even why you got the number that you did. And so it's too simple to fight over methods. And I don't want to do that. Um, instead, we need to know why particular numbers are right or good um, and how they help us make decisions. So let's explore um, why stakeholders like numbers to begin with. What makes researchy numbers good in any kind of way? And I'm going to show you an example of doing that. So Stakeholders like numbers because they work in, in, for the most part, big institutions. Um, I say stakeholders because I'm try, try, trying not to say clients, but from my point of view, clients, if you're um, based in an organisation, you might have stakeholders. And people who work in organisations who have to make decisions have a trust problem. Um, institutions that are big enough that uh, for, for lots of people to work in them, there's no way for this one person to trust that next person who they encounter because they don't have time often to, to establish an interpersonal trust relationship. So institutions have abandoned that as a way to make decisions. And the, what they've substituted for is measurement. Um, they've substituted trusting in measurement for trusting in people. And so measurement is this proxy for trust. So I'm gonna tell you about Jane Austen, of course, to explain this. In Pride and Prejudice, um, we know what Elizabeth Bennet does. She's waiting around to get married. We know what Darcy does. He's the uh, landlord of Pemberley. What does Mr. Wickham do? What's his job? Answers in the chat. Where has the chat gone? Who knows? Um, Wickham's a soldier. And we know this because, spoilers, at the end, Darcy pays for his commission to be a, a lieutenant. So that's a weird idea. Why is Darcy paying so that Wickham can enter the army? He bought a commission. So back in the day, the only way to become an officer in the British military was quite literally to buy your way in. You had to purchase a commission because that is how the army and your commanding officers knew that you were serious. Um, to use a more modern idea, you had to prove you had skin in the game. And this was really important because there's no way to measure your uh, performance as a soldier. War is basically chaos. Everyone lines up and then runs at each other and shoots at each other. And there was no way to know who did what. Soldiers were compensated based on spoils of war. And so you had to buy your way in because there was no way to know what you contributed to the outcome. And they had to know you wouldn't run away the first time you got compensated. 
So the key idea here is there is literally no way to measure anything. Measuring reliable, measuring performance in a reliable way was only just being invented. And in the absence of being able to measure, the army substituted this, this being able to buy in, this, this one mechanism for trust, and the mechanism they, instead of having about being able to measure performance, they substitute this concept of skin in the game or a personal relationship. Um, since then, we've gotten a lot better at measuring stuff. The Industrial Revolution was paralleled by a revolution in institutions driven by this measurement idea. As we built bigger machines, we got better at measuring things more finely. Um, this parallels what India was talking about with uh, the growth in science follow, like paralleling the growth in printing. Um, so as you got better at measuring, we got better at building big things, we got better at having standardised production. And machines wear out. And so that meant we had to be even more, uh, be able to measure more finely So because we had to know when the machine was wearing out faster than we could uh, adjust its settings and so on. So being able to measure that variation became really important. And that variation in machine-made goods, in industrially produced goods, was another advance in measurement or being able to, me being able to ascertain that change in um, industrially produced goods was its own advance. Um, this is the Guinness beer part for those of you who've been following posts on LinkedIn. Um, making beer is an industrialized process that uses natural ingredients. And you have to be able to account for the variation in the chemical properties of these natural ingredients to know that you get the same beer at the end. Um, so you, and you can't test every piece of hops that goes into your beer. You have to, be able to test a tiny amount of this batch of hops before you can go, this is the right amount of hops to put into the, the mash and so on. Um, so in 1908, there was a brewer at the Guinness Brewery, William Seeley Gossett, who invented this statistical process to test a tiny bit and be able to make some statement about the whole. Um, he published that under a pseudonym, Student, and the student t-test is still used in scientific research today, and it's more than 100 years old as a mathematical technique. So we got better at measuring things. We got so good at measuring things, we could test tiny samples and be able to make confident predictions about the whole. Um, and this is because of a weird property of randomness. Randomness at scale is predictable. If you play poker, you know this. If you play Monopoly on the weekends, maybe you know this, where it's more likely that you'll get a five or six or a seven than a two or a 12. Um, this is a really weird idea. People who trust numbers trust in the predictability of randomness. So with that, let's talk about the next thing. What makes a good number in terms of design research? And when you encounter numbers as researchers, what, how should you judge the quality of them? So your first task as a design researcher looking at numbers someone else has made is to say, does this measure what it actually claims to do? And lots of surveys that you might uh, find have this somewhat tenuous relationship with um, 
what they ask and what the results are and what people say they mean. Sometimes these surveys are a bit shady and other times they're built on nonsense. Hi, NPS. Um, academics sometimes make it harder than necessary to understand their numbers too. This is a problem because lots of really great work has, been gone, has gone into producing surveys that are really good for user experience. Sorry, Steve. And I, I apologise for interrupting, but it, it's been highlighted that your slides are not um, moving forwards oh. and people are loving what you're saying, but they're interested in, in what they should be seeing. And I just thought I will, I will interrupt and, and ask and, and let you know. How about now? Um, they are moving forward now. Great. Cool. So this is the, this is, you know, surveys are a bit shady sometimes. Um, and your job as a, as a researcher is go, does this thing measure what it claims to do? Lots of surveys are a bit shady. Some are built on nonsense. Uh, if you look in the academic literature, you can find lots of great surveys that have been tested and validated by people who are far, far better mathematicians and statisticians than I am, and I make no claim at being very good at any of those things. Um, the problem is you have to read the academic literature to make sense of it, and you have to be quite statistically literate to understand what on earth those papers and surveys are about. Um, fortunately, tools like Google Scholar and the new archive.org research repository um, make it easier to find those things, and you can learn to read the academic literature. Uh, or you can ask your friendly neighbourhood academic to help you. Um, even more fortunately, people like Jeff Sarrow, whose website Measuring You is fantastic and Jeff's books are also awesome, um, has written extensively about uh, quantitative methods for user experience. And Jeff talks about a heap of other people who do that as well. Um, you can get better understanding like what makes a survey good? How can you judge the quality of these sort of tools? If you want to start somewhere, start with Jeff Sarrow's work. Um, so that idea of measure what you claim is really important. The second idea about what makes numbers good is um, you need a benchmark because unless you have something to compare a measurement to, you just have a single number and you need to be able to say what that number means. So a benchmark is really important. Um, a benchmark lets you answer the question of what is what does good mean in this case. So, you know, if you survey 100 people and the average of their answers is 72 out of 100 and they're reporting on perceived usability, is that good? Is 72 good? What if you get 68? Is, is the difference between 68 and 72 something that matters? What if it's 55? Is that terrible or is that still okay? You can't know the answer unless you have a benchmark. Um, clients and stakeholders love benchmarks because the benchmark makes your data um, more objective because you can position it in relation to something outside of their organization, outside of you and your experience. And it lets you tell a better story. Uh, a benchmark does that by delegating that trust decision to work that has happened before you got there. And it delegates that into the effort that went in, into producing the benchmark. Um, 
if you're testing um, before going into production, a benchmark lets you know whether your results now, so if you're testing a prototype, are poor or good or above average. And with that sort of information, you can make stakeholders more confident about a commitment to go into build. So if you're doing usability testing on a prototype and you're getting results that are objectively poor, you can more easily make the case of like, we need to do more design work. Or if you're getting results that are objectively good, then it's easy to go to stakeholders and go, it's ready, move into build. This makes people with an engineering or management background really happy when they can make decisions with confidence based on a, a benchmark that they understand. You can also use this benchmark idea if you're testing a live site. And if you test the live site constantly, you can make your own benchmark. Um, and you can make that argument for we should intervene in this live site because you have some basis on which to make that argument. If the live site tests poorly, invest in a new design. If the live site is testing well, that's cool. Pay attention to something else. If you combine a benchmarked quantitative study with qualitative work and your experience or your team's experience as designers, and you can know when and where to intervene, you become a much more effective team and you become much more compelling to management. And if you're in an agile work, in agile uh, work environment, you can use this iterative approach to testing and you can even get away with really small sample sizes to um, prove that work has gone through stage gates effectively. So good numbers, good surveys measure what they intend to measure. Good surveys and good numbers have a benchmark. And good numbers are easy to administer and easy to analyze. So the easiest quantitative question that you can ask that measures what it says it does and has a benchmark is this, and it seems ridiculous. It is called the single ease question. And you ask people having done a task, how easy or difficult was this task? And you show them this scale and they pick one number and you are done and out. If you Google this, you will find uh, Jeff Sarrow's work on it. This has been published in the academic literature and Jeff Sarrow has proved that it measures what it says it does. Um, you do this with 20 people, you average out the, their answers and you can report mm, the single ease question result for our 20 people was six. That's an awesome result. The benchmark for good is about five and a half, I think. Um, I'm very reticent to present this to you as do this and you're done because this is like teaching someone to uh, chop an onion with a freshly sharpened knife. Unless you do this exactly the right way, you're going to cut yourself and it's going to happen anyway, so be ready for it. This kind of thing, when I say it measures what it says, it has a good benchmark and it's easy to administer, you have to do it exactly as the literature tells you to. You can't use a five-point scale that hasn't been validated. You have to use this exact wording. I think there's two versions of wording that we, that they know work. You have to use this exact wording. You have to put the difficult end at one and the easy end at seven. When you're doing quantitative stuff 
and you want to say that it's been validated. You have to do it exactly the way the practitioner who invented it does so that you are also replicating their method. It's really, really important. So something like this, though, this is a trade-off on this easy to administer, easy to um, analyze scale. Something that's simple like this is really easy to use, but it only tells you one thing. It tells you that one thing very easily and very quickly. This is the whole opposite end of that easy and quick scale. This is called the user experience questionnaire. This is one of the outputs of a user experience questionnaire. The thing that participants see that asks them questions is a 26 sem question semantic differential survey. It's like pairs of words and it's like, was this enjoyable or frustrating? Was this attractive or unattractive? 26. Um, analyzing that takes a special spreadsheet. The people who invented the user experience questionnaire give you the spreadsheet. Understanding the spreadsheet requires reading a couple of academic papers but you don't just get one number. You get the benchmark, and this is the benchmark chart. You get the rich results from each participant and the average results for your participants in the pool that you used. You can report across these six scales, attractiveness, perspicuity, which hilariously means clarity, uh, efficiency, dependability, simulation, and novelty. When you have that, you get a lot more granular data about the thing you use this to assess. And it helps you advocate for design decisions, especially when paired with qualitative work as well. You go, why, looking at this chart here, why is the novelty scale so low? And it might be because the thing that you tested was mostly a form-filling field-by-field exercise. You don't want that to be novel. So in this case, that low result on novelty is good because it should be something people are bored and familiar with. If you're putting a game in front of someone, you want high novelty results. So you have to do more work to understand the outcomes of this sort of survey, but you can tell a much better story with it or a much richer story with it. So on this easy to administer, easy to analyze scale, sometimes the effort is worth it to get more granular data. Um, here is an example uh, with our old trend, the system usability scale. And the system usability scale dates from the late 80s. And just because it's old, though, doesn't mean it's not relevant. The system usability scale, I'm guessing some of you are familiar with it, is a very cleverly constructed 10-question survey. It's a little fiddly to analyze, and you only get one number at the end of it all. The number is a score out of 100, and it's general practice to average each participant's score and then report that number. Um, it's fiddly to analyze, but Jeff Sarrow, there his name is again, has done lots of work to create a really good benchmark for the system usability scale. So you get a number, you can tell a story about how it fits to the benchmark. I was going to use an example of work that I've done, but uh, this paper is four days old and it's too good not to share and not to talk about. Um, it's by uh, Bloom and colleagues who are uh, emergency physicians in the United Kingdom. This paper is open access, so if you Google usability of electronic health record systems in UK EDs, you will find it and you can see the whole paper. 
Um, if you keep up with UX Australia, you might have seen Ash Donaldson talking about the terrible user experience of many electronic health record systems. And in this paper, Bloom and colleagues describe a large-scale survey they conducted with emergency medicine doctors in the UK using the system usability scale survey. They asked just over 8,500 doctors in the emergency, just in emergency rooms which medical record system they use, and they asked them to fill out the SUS for it. They got 1,600-ish uh, responses. 15 of the systems that they got responses about had more than 20 responses, and that's what's in this paper. So they might have got other, they might have got 10 responses on some other system. That's not in this. They're using enough data that they can make good statements about the, the, the what they found. Um, this is the chart that is the, you know, the cornerstone of this paper. And what they do in this is they compare their results to the SUS benchmark. I'm going to make this a bit bigger for you. Um, the way what this is doing, all the systems are listed across the bottom and they're listed left to right in the order of the, num the number of responses they got. So that the system furthest to the left had the most responses and the system furthest to the right had the least responses. The, um, each system has a dot and that little weird double-ended T. The dot is the median or the most common rating that they received for that system. And then the little double-ended T, it's not error bars that you might have encountered, it's the 95% confidence interval. So that's the only bit of mathematical jargon. Let me explain it to you. Remember the Guinness BS story about sampling a tiny amount and being able to make a statement about the whole? That's what this is. Students T creates the confidence interval for you. And the way confidence interval works is it is a statistical statement about whether or about how confident you can be that the survey you did relates to the whole population. So looking at that far left one, the dot, the most common response they got for whatever the name of that system is, was just over 50. They are, what that double-ended T says, they're 95% sure that if they asked a whole nother set of people who use that system to rate it on the system usability scale, that those new people's response would be somewhere in that double-ended T, the top and bottom of that double-ended T. They're 95% sure that the rating would be within that bound. It's 2.5% likely it's above, 2.5% likely it's below, 95% sure somewhere in that bound. And that works all the way along. The calculation for each one is necessarily based on the data you got for just that system. So some, the band is bigger because there's more variability in those responses. Some, the band is tighter because there's less variability. That thing that I've labelled as the good line, that's the benchmark in the system usability scale. The benchmark is usually accepted as being 68. Jeff Sarrow says it's actually sort of four points either side. Um, you have to cross that line before you can say the result is good. None of these electronic medical record systems 
have a median rating on the 1600 responses that puts them over the good line. And only three have a 95% confidence interval that crosses that good line. If you're thinking that's terrible, you are correct. And so this is what this sort of thing lets you do. When you have this, you know what good numbers are, when you measure what you intend, when the survey is easy to administer and analyze, you can report data like that that I just showed. We have confidence in the survey, we have confidence in the benchmark, and you can verify all of those things. And so the survey and benchmark are as scientifically objective as we can make them. And because those things are objective, we can use them to make comparisons. We can compare different systems and we can compare iterations of the same system. And if your stakeholders are engaged and smart and you present them something like this, you'll get better questions. You won't get how significant is this, you'll get why is that? And you go, well, here is this qualitative work I've done that answers the why question. Um, qualitative research is a tool and a technology. And like any tool or technology, it is neither good nor bad, but nor is it neutral. Quantitative approaches have an underlying value system, and this isn't that talk. Um, you might struggle to create numbers for some types of research, and that's okay. Some types of research you can't quantify. Then quant these approaches aren't for every situation, but as you add them to your repertoire, you'll also learn how to use them and how to make them part of uh, a richer whole of doing research. Um, numbers need explaining. You can't just put a figure up on the slide and go, done. But that's good for us because it means we get to tell better stories. And if you have a benchmark, your story becomes even richer. Um, why this is so important is because often as a consultant researcher, I give my reports over to people and then they have to continue to advocate for that in their organization. And they might believe in the power of qual because I've educated them into that and brought them into my world. But when they report up to their stakeholders, they don't have that time or they don't have that skill to do that advocacy. Numbers though are more easily consumed in organizations. And if you give your stakeholders numbers, they can advocate for that outcome that you have produced as they take that and make it part of their work. So the last thing that you should know is these approaches really fit into agile work processes if you're working in an organization that, that works that way. An easy to administer survey can become part of an iterative development and testing cycle. And because you can use small sample sizes if you look into um, doing uh, confidence intervals, you can work with really small sample sizes and make really strong uh, statements about your research outcomes. And that's how you can use this to continue moving into the future. Um, so yeah, if you care, look into that. What you should take away, hey Steve, um, is your stakeholders ask for numbers because they have a trust problem and they trust measurement. And particular kinds of measurement rely on the fact that randomness is predictable. Good numbers have three properties. They measure what they say, they have a benchmark, and the survey is easy to use and administer and easy to analyze. And when you have a quantitative result, your job is to use it to tell a story. So now go 
um, find a new way to find confidence in your ability to make numbers and use that to persuade your stakeholders. You can learn to do it and you can do it. And that is all I have to say. Thank you. Thank you, Ben. That was awesome. Thanks. Mm -hmm.